This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dr Emma Shortus. Emma is a historian and an author, and she joined me to discuss her new book, Our Exceptional Friend, Australia's Fatal Alliance with the United States. We start this conversation considering the situation in Afghanistan where the Taliban have taken over and it is now a mad scramble for countries like the United States and Australia to get people out of the country. I'm Amy Mullins and I'm joined now by Dr Emma Shortus, who is an historian and an author of a book. It's her first book. It is out through Hardy Grant Books. It's called Our Exceptional Friend, Australia's Fatal Alliance with the United States. And this is an entirely unbiased review from me. It is quite literally a brilliant book. It is eloquent, incisive, robust in a scholarship sense, and also just really frank and refreshing. And uh, yeah, I just absolutely loved reading every page of Emma's book. And so I ended up with a ton of notes, a lot of bolded sections and underlines, and we're going to get to as much as we can but I think it's such a huge testament to Emma's great intellect and also her wonderful ability to communicate these issues with us, with the general public. So a big congratulations to you, Emma, on this fantastic work. Oh, thank you, Amy. That that was such a lovely introduction. Yeah, I'm really excited for the book to be out tomorrow. It is really fantastic. We'll get into it so people can tell just how fantastic it is in a moment. But first up, we do need to acknowledge and just talk about briefly Afghanistan. It is very much in the minds of everyone, I hope, in the world who has seen the videos, the images, the reporting on the ground from local Afghan journalists and also a few international journalists who have stayed back in Afghanistan to report about the takeover of that country by the Taliban. And obviously there's a lot of complexity that goes into it. So I'll leave you to to share that with us. But it seems that the Americans almost have been blindsided by the fact that the Taliban could take over so quickly the entire country, including the capital, Kabul, and to see the head of Afghanistan flee the country with apparently carloads of cash is what the reports have said. And we did see the Pentagon giving a media briefing this morning, our time, which basically said, and this is a paraphrase, that they didn't expect that the capitulation by the Afghan security forces would be so absolute and so quick. Do you think this was a a really naive assumption to be making, especially given the history in Afghanistan? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not even sure naive quite covers it. I think, you know, anybody who follows American politics or even has a kind of a a sense of American history and American power in the world sensed something like this coming, you know, sensed that this was possible, that this forever war would kind of result in this really unspeakable horror. So it's, it's not like this kind of result wasn't easily foreseeable given that history of American power and the way that American military interventionism works. I think specifically the the speed with which it has happened is partly due to the Pentagon, so the kind of defence establishment in the United States, being so geared towards perpetual war and perpetual the perpetual presence of the American military in the Middle East that the contingency planning for an actual exit didn't happen properly. It didn't happen in the way that it should. So intelligence in that sense were taken by surprise by the speed of what has happened, but they really shouldn't have been. You know, this is part of a long history of the United States just completely misunderstanding the context in which they are operating. And I think that goes beyond naivety to a kind of I suppose, deliberate neglect and and a real moral failing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Ignorance and, and a complete moral failure. And, you know, again, to have that sense of American history, you know, to know that this is possible is quite different to seeing it really play out, to see those failures, the absolute failure to learn those lessons of history is just unspeakably horrific. 
there are so many consequences. And I was looking back at the reporting on this and trying to piece together the timeline in my mind, because we did see Donald Trump, when he was president, announce the US withdrawal from Afghanistan. And then we saw when Biden came in, the support for that policy, and he set a timeline that was different from Trump's timeline of May this year. He actually moved it to a very symbolic date of September 11. We had also seen articles around, well, how are we going to get out the translators and the security personnel who've supported the allied forces from Western nations? Uh, What are we going to do with those people? How are we going to support them? How are we going to close our embassies in an orderly manner that is safe and secure? I mean, these are things that were part of a public discussion, not even just a private secret discussion. So it is pretty staggering looking on and looking back at what had been floated to see that not only America, but even the UK is caught off guard and they're also trying to hang back to get their people out. And even obviously Australia is another example where we've seen ongoing discussion of this issue for months and the Australian government has been seemingly dragging its heels. Yeah, and I think quite rightly that has been condemned as a as an utter moral failing on you know on the part of Australia and those other allies in Afghanistan. But you know, unfortunately, again, I I don't think it's particularly surprising. We've seen a kind of retrospective justification of the intervention in Afghanistan as you know being around human rights and women's rights in particular. But that was never the aim. That wasn't the no. original aim of of the United States and and Australia in going into Afghanistan. And I think. Since the beginning of of the war on terror, we've seen a blanket and racist demonisation of Middle Eastern people generally, not just the Afghan people. And you see that play out in the way that, you know, there has been this failure to protect even those Afghans who worked very closely with allied forces and, you know, by all accounts were integral to those operations. That failure to protect them is part of a long history of those moral failings in Australia as well, you know, where where I think it's 4,000 Afghan refugees have been refused permanent protection for a decade now. So that's part of a long pattern, part of a long abandonment and racist demonisation of people who don't look like, you know, the, the governments that are in charge of both Australia and the United States. And, you know, I argue in the book that that's a central pillar of our alliance with the United States is this kind of racist othering of the rest of the world and seeing ourselves as not morally accountable for, for that alliance and, and the moral implications of, of what it does and the way it positions us to see the rest of the world. There's this very, very stark division between the so-called goodies and baddies. And also it means that there's a lot of that also unfortunate term collateral damage in the sense of Afghan civilians, for example, being caught up in a 20-year war where so many people have lost their lives because of these interventions. And no one would say that Afghanistan was doing particularly well in terms of their treatment of women and girls. Clearly, there was a major, major suppression of women's rights and violence against women and all those kind of things with the Taliban beforehand. But we've seen locals on the ground who've been brave enough to speak out say that they are concerned because the unintended consequence or side effect of US military intervention in their country was that a number of women had gained freedoms that they just didn't want to give up. And now a number of them have said they've had to go out to buy head-to-toe burqas in order to try and keep a low profile so that they don't get targeted by the Taliban. Yeah, that's right. And it is absolutely horrific to watch. And I think particularly viewed from Australia, you know, we understand, I think, that we are deeply morally implicated in that and in what is happening, particularly to women and children in Afghanistan. But in terms of a a governmental response, you know, it just doesn't seem to translate to concrete action, to helping people to get out. And I think you know, there's a really, people would get a really clear sense from the statements the Australian government has made, the statements Joe Biden and and the Pentagon have made, that really they could see this coming, maybe the speed with which it's come has been a surprise, but generally they can rest assured that the political consequences, their domestic political consequences, will be fairly minimal. You know, there's such a disconnect between foreign policy and 
democratic accountability in both Australia and the mm. United States, that, that the consequences are, are minimal. And you can kind of see in real time both governments hoping that this will fall out of the news cycle and, and you know, people will kind of move on and, and forget about it. And I think, you know, the war in Afghanistan has is now both Australia and the United States' longest foreign war. And, and I think we can overestimate the kind of attention that it gets in the United States, in American domestic politics, and the general way that fatigue with those wars, fatigue with American military interventionism, will, I suppose, kind of overtake this sense of moral responsibility that people are feeling now. Well, let's use this as a way into your book, because I just read at about 6.30 this morning a statement from President Joe Biden on Facebook. And I mean, it just really highlighted pretty much everything you point out in this book. So I thought I'd read it out so we can uh, use it as a point of discussion. Quote, we went to Afghanistan almost 20 years ago with clear goals. Get those who attacked us on September 11, 2001, and make sure al-Qaeda could not use Afghanistan as a base from which to attack us again. We did that a decade ago. Our mission was never supposed to be nation building. The end. Is this the most appropriate statement? I mean, it is pretty bold, to say that right now, given the failures of America. And clearly, even in that statement, I'm not sure if Joe Biden is aware of what exactly he's highlighting about their role in the world. Yeah, it is a really interesting statement. And I think that phrase nation building is a really critical one because there's a long history of criticism and tension in the United States about America's role in the world and whether it should be focused on nation building, you know, on, on kind of building the rest of the world in America's image in this kind of liberal democratic republic in the sense of the very real sense of, of spreading democracy, as, as George Bush called it. So I think that phrase is designed particularly to solicit that response, to solicit that kind of fatigue in America with, you know, sending troops abroad and American troops dying for, for this cause. So, so Biden is very calculated in that sense. And I think that's where Biden shows us really that he is continuing the long threads of, of American power and American foreign policy and the way that it operates in the world. You know, I think there was a real hope that Biden would be different, I suppose, you know, that he he would be so different to Trump. But in the sense of, of that foreign policy and the way that America acts in the world, it, it's very similar. It's, you know, American intervention that's done without care for context um, and without a clear sense of what the purpose is. You know, I think initially Biden is right that the point was to get Osama bin Laden, but that that mission creep happened so quickly. And that happened because the United States political system is geared towards perpetual war. You know, the momentum is always towards intervention and towards war and to ignoring, you know, I don't want to oversimplify, but to ignoring really the lessons of history and the, and the history of American power. So, in that sense, I think Biden is really continuing what we've seen and also continuing, I think, that refusal to have a real reckoning with what's happening. You know, he's he's being very, I suppose, dismissive in that quote you read, Amy, and he said previously that he would feel zero responsibility if, if Afghanistan fell again to the Taliban. And again, I think that just tells you about the nature of American power and about the real refusal to examine American exceptionalism and what it does to the world. So you, you will see genuine regret, I think, and genuine grief about what has happened in Afghanistan, but that isn't accompanied by that real genuine reflection and reformation of American power. One of the great points you make in this book is about this idea that we would get this massive relief when Trump is gone, uh, Joe Biden would arrive on the scene, he's got some progressive ideas about climate change. Domestically, he's trying to uh, address some of the inequality that exists in America, though that's a, a huge task to take on. You point out in the book that there's this real delineation between internal politics and then external politics and how America interacts with the rest of the world. So I wonder if you could expand on the thoughts that you had on that issue, particularly that distinction that they've got, this difference of approach in terms of the way they're approaching their politics domestically and internationally. Yeah, sure. I, I, it is really hard, I think, to get our heads around. And I, you know, I shared in that relief when when Donald Trump 
left office after that kind of horribly tumultuous time around the transition that, you know, Joe Biden is undoubtedly a more compassionate leader who actually cared that half a million Americans had died in a global pandemic and and really set about doing something about it. So I don't I don't want to diminish the differences between those administrations because the the differences are huge but mm. as you as you're alluding to Amy the differences i think are mostly domestic you know joe biden's job is to look after the american people that is what he sees as his job and i don't think he's wrong in that but that means exactly as you said that there's a big difference i think between domestic policy settings so you know seeing Joe Biden talk about white supremacy as a stain on the soul of the nation, that kind of progressivism and that kind of reform is is focused inwards. It's not focused outwards and on examining American power. And I think viewed from Australia, a useful way of trying to understand that is is to look at the issue of climate change. So I think when Biden was elected in Australia, particularly for progressives, there was a huge sense of relief that that maybe now you know, Australia would be forced to act on climate change because our most important security ally had elected an administration committed to arguably radical action on climate change, Australia would finally have to shift as well, you know, that effectively the US would fix Australian climate policy. I argue in the book that because our relationship with America is purely focused on military threat, on understanding the world in terms of kind of binary goodies and baddies, we cannot expect that the alliance will work in progressive, positive ways in issues like climate change because military threat and threat from other people rather than kind of more nebulous threats like climate change or or even pandemic, because that is the sole focus. The Australian government can be assured really that any diplomatic pressure, any pressure from the US administration for us to act on climate change is going to be isolated to particular climate talks, particular meetings to a kind of diplomatic pressure. It's never going to extend into the core of the relationship, which is about war, essentially. And and the Australian government knows that all too well. So that's why I argue that our relationship with the US is so toxic for Australian foreign policy, because it really reinforces, it encourages, it perpetuates the worst instincts in both Australian politics, but also American foreign policy through our support, our unquestioning continued loyalty of that American military power. And let's talk about this intense relationship between Australia and America. So in the opening chapter of the book, there's so many fascinating anecdotes about Australia's links, certainly at a leadership level um, and the way that historically prime ministers have interacted and responded to American platitudes and special hosting of ceremonies for Australians at the White House. And obviously Scott Morrison and Donald Trump were pretty close politically in an ideological sense. There are parallels and things that you point out there in terms of the similarities and the foundations of that relationship. And one that is just so interesting and striking was in particular a quote that Donald Trump, then President of the United States, gave at a September 2019 toast at a dinner in honour of uh, our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. He said, quote, our two countries were born out of a vast wilderness settled by the adventurers and pioneers whose fierce self-reliance shaped our destiny. And then you go on to point out that the former vast wilderness they had each come to govern had not in fact been wilderness at all, but lands long populated by First Nations peoples on whom those same adventurers and pioneers had visited deliberate genocide. It is really stark, and it is a thread that's in existence throughout this book, is the constant foundations of colonisation of genocide in both countries that both countries do share and how they have great relevance for the way that we approach each other in terms of the country's relationships, but also the policies that are enacted. Yeah, that's right. I think, you know, when our, sorry, international relations or, or political science analysts go to the history of, of Australia's relationship with the United States, they go back to the treaty, to, to the Australia-New Zealand-US Security Treaty and its origins there and kind of look at the last 70 years. Part of what I wanted to do with the book was look more deeply at the origins of that relationship and why it is that we, that Australian governments kind of sought out the 
protection of a great superpower and a, and a superpower that's so far away. You know, why Australian governments looked so far outside of our region for this kind of protection from a threat that's much closer to us. And, you know, I, I'm certainly not the first person to argue this, but but a major part of the reason that Australian governments sought out protection was racism. You know, it was fear of the other in our region and, and, and looking for a white protector in the United States. And that is part of our shared histories, our shared values um, as nations, as, you know, nations that are founded on dispossession and, and genocide. And I argue in the book that the only way Australia would ever be able to really reform our role in the world and to to adopt, I suppose, a more moral approach to the world is to really face those origins and to understand that, you know, in the 1940s and the 1950s when Australia was looking out into the world with fear and racism, that part at least of that fear, that racist fear, is born out of a kind of, I suppose, unacknowledged fear that somebody, some other country, would come and try and steal the lands that we had already stolen so effectively. And what I think ANZUS does, what our relationship with the United States does is, is reinforce that legacy. It, it reinforces that legacy of racism and dispossession and puts us in a position where we continue to look out into the world and to look at people in our own country with fear and with racism. And the only way that we could really begin to reform that to build a different role for Australia and the United States in the world is to really understand that, to understand what ANZUS and the Alliance what it is born out of and, and what it creates. And that is confronting, but it explains, you know, why Scott Morrison and Donald Trump had such a close relationship. It explains why Donald Trump could still say that, that you know, our two countries were, were born out of vast wilderness without any real pushback or with a, you know, sense that, well, Trump is grotesque and, you know, his politics are terrible, but we still need America. We still need America to protect us from something worse. And we really confront what we think that something worse is and why it is that we don't try and build a world where that something worse doesn't exist, where we don't have to be afraid. Yeah, I'm speaking with Dr Emma Shortis and we're talking about her book, Our Exceptional Friend, Australia's Fatal Alliance with the United States. Now, Emma, you point out in this book that this othering and this fear, the racist fear of certain countries across history, certainly Australia's fear, have shifted in terms of the target of, of our fears. And at the moment, that fear is China. But in the past, you say there have been other countries that have taken that position, like Japan, Korea, Vietnam, and Indonesia. These are countries that we see in popular culture, in history, in the social interactions between Australians and people who have migrated here, fears are expressed in very real ways. It's not just a kind of removed foreign policy debate that happens between so-called experts and politicians and, and the like and academics. This is something that has real life effects. And it's something that you do point out is that these otherings and fears uh, that are really based in and grounded in racism affect people today and also affected people in the past. Could you expand on that and the ways that it plays out, not just at this kind of high-level strategic zone, but also in the ways that it affects us today? Why should we care? Because I think some people might feel like a lot of this is very esoteric to them, mm. and although they may think about it and be concerned by it, they may not understand those kind of touch points here in the real world, I guess you would quote unquote call it, in Australian domestic politics. Yeah, look, that's right. And I think it, it's completely reasonable for, for people to see those kind of foreign policy questions as really distant because kind of, as we've said, there's very little democratic accountability when it comes to, to foreign policy. But I think there are, as you say, I mean, there, there are very real consequences for people as a result of these foreign policy stances and the way we kind of categorise people as, as enemies or friends. And you see that play out, particularly when it comes to China, which is, you know, the kind of 
I suppose, the focus of, of the ANZUS alliance at the moment, because ANZUS always needs an external enemy and it's always a non-white enemy and China is, is the focus at the moment. You see the way that that is used, the way demonisation of, of Chinese peoples generally as a result of ANZUS results directly, you know, in the United States and Australia in incidences of hate crimes and violence against Asian Americans and Asian Australians. So you see that in a very real sense. But what I argue in the book as well is the way that the alliance demonises other people, you know, be it Chinese people, be it Afghan people, um, the list is the list is pretty long. What that foreign policy, what that kind of foreign policy does is reinforce as well a network, a very dangerous network of white supremacy um, between countries in the West, but particularly Australia and the United States, where you see very deep links and reinforcement and feedback loops between white supremacist organisations on both sides of the Pacific. And that plays out with very specific consequences. I think one of the most significant recent ones being the massacre in Christchurch, where an Australian man committed that race, that massacre and was directly inspired by events in the United States, by white supremacists in the United States who were acting in Charlottesville in Virginia. And that isn't divorced from the alliance because the way that those people demonise Muslim people in particular was reinforced and is continually reinforced by the war on terror and by the United States and Australia's response to 9-11. So we are, we are trapped really in this kind of horrendous feedback loop where the alliance, that kind of high-level, um, you know, geostrategic policy to, to kind of use that IR speak, reinforces this toxic politics on the ground, so to speak, that has very, very real consequences for people. And let's confront that ANZUS treaty that we hear about all the time, but probably never actually read. I mean, I think <laughs> I had to read it twice for various assessments and that kind of thing. And I mean, I was never all that engaged on the ANZUS question, but I did find it really interesting that initially it was brought into effect or um, the meeting occurred in 1951. I believe it came into effect in 1952. Mm. And you say that all six signatories to the ANZUS Treaty were white men, that not really much has changed since that point, but that also a number of people probably don't actually examine what the ANZUS Treaty actually guarantees or does not guarantee and what the real nitty-gritty of the wording is is and you do go into that which I'm so glad that you do so could you please if you don't mind and I can read out the wording if you don't have it in front of you in the in your uh in the car, in the car. <laughs> so let me know but yeah I just love to go into that because it is so illuminating to this whole myth around what we've actually signed up to yeah, it is. I mean, it is quite extraordinary, you know, even for someone like me who's kind of immersed in US-Australia relations to actually sit down and read the ANZUS Treaty because this document, like this relationship that Australia's foreign and security policy and our role in the world revolves around, like this is this is the basis on which our foreign policy is built, is actually really short. Like it's only a kind of 11 articles, you know, a couple of pages. Hardly anybody has actually read it, including me, I have to admit properly, before I started writing the book. But you will consistently hear from supporters of the, of the US alliance and even people who are kind of mildly, mildly sceptical about American power, you will consistently hear that we need the ANZUS Treaty not because of even of the whole thing, but because of just one article, which I suppose supporters will say gives Australia a guarantee of American military protection. You know, this is the idea that we need this protector because we're a small or a middle power and we can't protect ourselves from multiple existential threats. So we need America kind of regardless of, of what America does in the world. And this all centres around this article, Article 4, which I don't have the exact wording for, Amy, but, but in the book, as I say, it's not even the whole of the article necessarily that, that people make this assumption about. It's really one word in the article, which is a, a promise that each party to the treaty will act. So they will act in response to an attack. And what this one word is taken to mean is that we have this guarantee that, you know, if we need America, if this like kind of tomorrow when the war began style invasion happens, America will come and rescue us. What I argue in the book is that that idea that 
America will come to our rescue is just not true because a promise to act can mean absolutely anything. It Mm. can mean like a strongly worded letter or it can mean like going to the UN Security Council and requesting a resolution. It doesn't mean troops on the ground. It doesn't mean a guarantee of an, an American nuclear umbrella, which is often assumed. And so what I what I argue is that this kind of mythology around our you know perpetual security guarantee just completely distorts the way Australia and so many Australians see our role in the world and what we can do because we absolutely do not have a security guarantee for the United States you know the United States certainly might come to our rescue if if we needed them to if this kind of perpetual existential threat does exist but the United States is only ever going to come to our rescue if they see it, if, you know, whichever presidential administration is in charge at the time, if they see it as in their interest. And you can certainly imagine scenarios where they don't, you know, where where you have an American president who's reluctant to commit troops because domestically it's going to be really difficult for him. Of course, it's always a him, you know, that they won't come to our rescue. And I think the assumption that they will just, again, reinforces that idea that we are constantly under threat, that we need to be afraid of other people in our region and really precludes us from thinking about the world in a different way, from, you know, approaching our region with generosity and empathy and in an attempt to to build a region and a world in which we don't have to feel afraid. Yeah, and I was really interested in that line, and I won't read it all out because it's about five lines, but <laughs> one of the um, the key bit that you mentioned there about acting, saying that, quote, declares that it would act to meet the common mm. danger, common danger. Exactly, so there's that yeah. shared threat that they have to have. It's got to be a commonly held fear or danger. And obviously, as you said, the ANZUS Treaty always needs a kind of enemy or a bad guy or a common threat, which it currently does have because China has been singled out. And you go through the book talking about this so-called rising China and how it has to be in our mind a threat because it's rising you point out the hypocrisy of this throughout many pages in this book about the fact that just because China is rising does not mean that it's a threat and it doesn't mean that it wants to colonise Australia and bring its supposedly separate values to Australia. I mean, obviously, there are clear political differences between the Communist Party in China and, you know, our parties here in Australia and their political system versus ours. But as we know, we've so many people who have migrated here from China. There are also a number of things that we share as humans. You know, there's a deeply shared humanity as well. And and that there is this kind of increasing hypervigilance in the media in political rhetoric, in the way that we behave and react to the way that China behaves. So I wonder, could you tease out some of these points that you make in the book? Because I just really found it interesting. And it's it's a conversation, unfortunately, that is not had enough, is to really confront these statements and to say, well, do they really pass the test in terms of being truthful? That's right. And look, that's part of the reason I think that, you know, it is a really difficult conversation to have. These are really complex, difficult moral questions. And and it's kind of almost impossible really to, to write about or talk about China in Australia without confronting these really deeply held assumptions or, or without being accused of being an apologist for, for Chinese actions, for the, sorry, I should be specific, for the actions of the Chinese government. What I try at least to argue in the book is that having this kind of looming shadow of the United States behind Australia whenever it is we are engaged diplomatically with the Chinese government or or facing these questions of this kind of rising, you know, quote-unquote rising threat of China is to kind of lock us into this position of seeing the world as, uh, you know, militarily and existentially threatening to us and to Australia. And that completely distorts how we see the Chinese government as compared to the Chinese peoples and the actions of the Chinese Communist Party. And it allows us to hide behind this kind of, I guess, curtain of, you know, being defenders of freedom and, and liberty and democracy in the world, which, you know, the United States has always set us up to be without really confronting our own moral complicity in in the kind of dangers of the world and and what it is that the Chinese government is doing. And 
again, you know, this is really, it's really difficult to talk about because of the kind of assumptions that we encounter. But so rarely in Australian conversations about China do we actually see or hear much honesty about, you know, what it is we think this threat from China is. So we talk in kind of coded terms about a rising China or geostrategic questions or the way that China uses economic coercion, kind of et cetera, et cetera, without facing, you know, the fact that the playbook that the Chinese Communist Party is using is the American playbook. Nothing China does in the world doesn't have some kind of historical equivalent in the United States. And we really talk about that. And I think we really also talk about the consequences, the potential consequences of what this kind of warmongering, what this kind of refusal to see the world in anything but kind of binary terms of enemies and and friends has for us. So what we'll see is departmental secretaries talking about the beating drums of war for Australia, but the protection afforded to us by the ANZUS Treaty. So you see high-level bureaucrats openly talking about war with China and the fact that the Americans will protect us from. And I just think that that is appalling in the way that it is so dismissive of the consequences of such a conflict and also in seeing a conflict like that as inevitable when it absolutely is not. And I just think that is that is one of the really clearly dangerous ways that our relationship with the United States sets us up for this environment of perpetual threat and seeing threat where there doesn't have to be a threat. And and again, I just think it's so damaging and so dangerous and, again, prevents us from approaching a country like China with complexity, with empathy, with nuance, and with a view to building a sustainable relationship that's not based on threatening China with our big friend, the United States, and its nuclear weapons, and not forcing the Chinese government into a position where it feels it can only respond in kind. Because again, I just think this is incredibly dangerous. And when we see people so cavalierly talking about a war with China, we see the same kind of historical mistakes of, you know, and, and the questions I ask in the book are, well, why aren't we talking then about what the consequences of such a war would be? You know, what would be the mission? How would we know when the war was over? How would we stop it from getting to mainland Australia? They're the kind of questions that just kind of get dismissed. And that I think is really, again, really dangerous. And I mean, you point out one particular example whereby the Chinese government was pursuing its own economic and political interests through trade policy when they temporarily banned Australian coal imports in response to many Australian political provocations, which I'm sure we'd all be pretty familiar with. And they were treated as entirely one-sided attacks, you say. And then you go on to say, quote, a sovereign country using trade policy to further its own interests, which the United States and Australia do all the time, is framed not as the normal state of affairs, but as something exceptionally belligerent. And that to me, really highlights the way that Australia in recent years has responded to China and increasingly so is this idea that somehow everything that China does is exceptional and that it is morally worse and unprecedented in some way than Western countries. And it's not to say that what they're doing is okay, but Mm. it's really very fair to say the least that we have this kind of take on the behaviour of China when we don't examine our own actions, our allies' actions in the same light. That's right. And that's, I mean, that's what I try to argue in the book, that but that both things can be true at once, that we can absolutely condemn the actions of the Chinese Communist Party um, when it comes to, you know, perhaps what they're doing in the South China Sea. And we can ask moral questions about what the Chinese Communist Party is doing while still acknowledging that, the, you know, the reason that they are able to do that, to take those actions, to use economic coercion is because of a global economic system that the United States built to serve its own interests and that Australia has always supported the United States in doing that. And also, as you say, Amy, you know, that the United States has a long history of doing exactly the same thing, of using its economic might to coerce other nations into, you know, adopting its own economic systems or to joining it in um, its perpetual wars. And, and really, 
examining Australia's complicity in that, I think, is essential, really, if we want to reform the way that Australia operates in the world. But but the sheer hypocrisy, I think, in the way that we have this conversation about China is really stark to me. And it is often just kind of very thinly veiled racism, our refusal to kind of acknowledge the similarities between what the Chinese Communist Party does and what the Biden administration or the or the Trump administration does is at its heart deeply racist. And I think we need to have an honest conversation about why that is, you know, about why we think American economic coercion is fine, but Chinese economic coercion is not, or why we think American oppression of human rights, which happens again all the time, why we think that is okay or that is forgivable, why we think the Trump administration is forgivable, why why we think it's, you know, forgivable enough that our head of state can go over and have posh dinners and talk about how much we love the United States, but we can't do that with China. You know, why I think we need to have an honest conversation about why that is and the consequences of that. Yeah. And all throughout this book, I was thinking there was another key party to this ANZUS Treaty, Mm. which was New Zealand. And all the way through was going, gosh, New Zealand is just this interesting comparison in terms of the road taken that was very different. And and you do highlight that at the beginning of Chapter 4, which looks at the fact that New Zealand, you know, had a really strong commitment to being anti-nuclear, anti-nuclear weapons in particular, and that they really did take a stand against the United States in the 1980s. And it all kind of came to a head. Uh, I was just fascinated about the standoff, really, between the two countries, um, New Zealand and the United States, and how essentially New Zealand exited ANZUS we didn't really change the name because I guess that would make it Oz, as in AUS, which probably wouldn't work. Could you share with us the alternative way of doing things and how New Zealand have somehow managed this legacy, this colonial past that they also have, Mm. and also that relationship with the United States and how they've really said, well, what have been the consequences? You know, have we been attacked by this foreign threat that we were scared of? What are the consequences of not having this supposed guarantee that exists in the ANZUS Treaty. It is, it is a really, I think it's a really interesting kind of illustration of, of possibilities, I suppose, what, what New Zealand did. Because you're right, you know, New Zealand was was there in the, in the middle of the ANZUS Treaty right up until the 1980s when a New Zealand Labor government was elected that had this a very strong moral commitment against nuclear power and nuclear weaponry in particular. We've got to remember this is, you know, one of the heights of the Cold War. Ronald Reagan is president and, and we're kind of living, I suppose, under the threat of nuclear apocalypse. So the New Zealand government basically refused United States submarines and ships entry into its ports because the Americans refused to say if they were holding nuclear weapons or if they were nuclear powered. And and this was astonishing at the time. You know, this is the tiny country of New Zealand standing up to the Reagan administration in the middle of the Cold War and saying, no, get out. We don't want you. We don't want your weapons here. And the Reagan administration was furious, absolutely furious, you know, just could not believe that this was happening and kind of tried really to call New Zealand's bluff and said, well, fine, you're kicked out of the ANZUS Treaty. You know, we're not going to uphold our commitments to you in the ANZUS Treaty, expecting, I think, that the New Zealand government would cave and say, oh, okay, well, we need your military protection, so, you know, you can come. But they didn't do that. And the, the New Zealand Prime Minister, David Lange, was kind, was kind of hilarious in in his honesty, I suppose. He, he basically said, well, that doesn't matter because New Zealand doesn't face a threat from anyone and even if we did, there's no guarantee that the United States would come to our rescue anyway. And history, you know, at least so far, has proven him right. New Zealand faced very little consequences. Uh, You know, obviously it hasn't faced a military threat and even in the diplomatic sense, you know, hasn't faced uh, great consequences from the United States, um, you know, has at the moment a, a very, I think, effective and close relationship still with the United States. So I think that's a really interesting example. But I also, you know, I would also say that Australia and New Zealand are very different. And Australia's deep security enmeshment with the United States then, and even more so today, almost kind of precludes Australia from having that kind of reckoning with the United States without potentially very different consequences. You know, the United States has a huge military presence in Australia and any attempts to extract that historically and I think going forward would be met with fierce resistance from the Americans. 
Yeah, I'm speaking with Emma Shortis, and as I said earlier, we're talking about her book, which is being released tomorrow. It's called Our Exceptional Friend. One of the interesting parts of Australian history, very interesting parts, and some people listening would have lived through it, was the period of the Vietnam War and also Gough Whitlam and his prime ministership. And he had some very radical policies. And you do highlight in the chapter on Pine Gap in particular, that base in the Northern Territory that really is the hub of American military intelligence and uh, operations in Australia. And the fact that Whitlam did provide some level of resistance to the Americans in various ways. And I just was really interested in that point because it's very rare if ever, to see an Australian Prime Minister provide any form of resistance. So I wonder if you could comment on that and the significance, historically, of at least that occurring. Sure. It is It is a really significant historical period. And, and you know, most Australians are, of course, aware of the controversies around the, the Whitlam government. But I think what often gets lost in, in that conversation about 1975 is the lead up to that and how so much of that tumultuous time kind of stemmed out of Whitlam doing ex- exactly as you say, Amy, and, and standing up to the Americans. And he did that in a number of ways, particularly around the, the Vietnam War. So one of Whitlam's first kind of foreign policy acts was to write to the Nixon administration and condemn its bombing campaign of North Vietnam, which was a bombing campaign with horrific consequences, horrific moral consequences. And Whitlam was opposed to that. So he wrote to Nixon about it and Nixon was furious. You know, he couldn't believe that this upstart Australian prime minister dared to, to write to him in this way. And the relationship really deteriorated from there um, to the point where Whitlam said that the Australian government was not going to renew the lease that allowed Americans to have this joint defence facility at Pine Gap, which is an incredibly secret facility, which was originally set up as part of the the Cold War of America's kind of defence and spying infrastructure set up against the Soviet Union that continues to operate today. And this is where we can see that divergence between Australian and New Zealand experiences with the Americans, because this attempt, I suppose, to assert Australian sovereignty when it came to that joint defence facility was met with a fierce wall of resistance and absolute fury from Richard Nixon, who, you know, we now know considered basically trashing the alliance altogether and visiting all kinds of consequences on the Australian government. And we know that history kind of overtook things and the Whitlam government was sacked. And then the Fraser government subsequently renewed that Pine Gap lease indefinitely. So so the Americans now have access to this joint defence facility indefinitely. And I think, you know, f- for me, what that period illustrates is the way, you know, partly in the way Australians talk about our own history is that, you know, Whitlam cops so much of the blame for the deterioration in that relationship, you know, that Whitlam made political miscalculations in kind of provoking the Americans and the Nixon administration in particular. But really what it highlighted to me is is just how much Australia and Australian governments are subject to the whims of American presidents. You know, Nixon reacted with such rage towards Whitlam, with such a deep hatred that that he kind of effectively had this tantrum and was willing to inflict all kinds of diplomatic consequences on the Australian government because it did something that he mildly didn't like. And that hasn't changed. You know, Australia given our security enmeshment with the United States, is basically kind of subject to the whims of whoever is in the White House. And because of Pine Gap, that means we're also deeply implicated in that one person in the White House's ability to do things like launch a nuclear strike, you know, for someone like Nixon to have a tantrum and push that big red button. And the question of how and if Australia could extricate ourselves from from that kind of implication, I think, is is a very difficult and confronting one. And you point out, you know, that Australia would be politically and morally implicated in any of those actions that are taken potentially or even likely unilaterally and even had been floated to have escalated when that example of Donald Trump using drone strikes to kill a leader in Iran that potentially would have sparked off a war against Iran or major conflict and Australia, you know, was caught off guard and you, you know, examine the response that was happening in the media, commentators who were just saying, oh gosh, 
obviously it's so hard to manage for Australia when you've got a president who's being unpredictable. And it was kind of seen as this weird aberration and fuel a sigh of relief when we're not drawn into the conflict. But you also look at that hypothetical of what if we had been and, you know, the fact that we are really actually implicated. And I guess that brought a historical point that Whitlam was making really is that he was making a moral judgment on America and that that's what was so unpalatable to America. Yeah, that's right. And and I, I probably should have said earlier that part of Whitlam's objection stemmed from a scenario in which the United States had gone to, to high alert, you know, had put all its nukes on alert in the Cold War. And it became clear that the United States could, if it wanted to, launch a nuclear strike using those facilities at Pine Gap without even telling the Australian government that that was its intention. And and Whitlam was horrified by that, as I think many Australians would be. Um, And you see supporters of, of the alliance say, well, we have such a close relationship with the Americans, you know, they wouldn't do that to us. We have a consultative relationship. This is a joint defence facility. We would always be consulted should the, the American, you know, whoever is in charge in the United States decide to do this. And I think, again, kind of history shows us that the United States doesn't consult. You know, it often acts unilaterally in its military interventionism. I think that the killing of Soleimani in Iran was, you know, a classic example of that, of the of the United States administration taking a decision that that it saw in its interests and just, you know, not even bothering to inform its allies that that's what it was doing, which has significant consequences, you know, for Australians on the ground in Iraq and in the Middle East, um, but also for foreign policy. So there's no indication that an American administration would consult the Australian government about the actions that it's going to take. And then even more broadly, you know, our alliance, our security enmeshment is kind of really set up to support the Americans and presidential administrations in those decisions regardless of of why or how they're made. So you will see prime ministers say repeatedly that, you know, should the United States go to war in North Korea, then, you know, as Malcolm Turnbull, who was prime minister at the time, said, you know, we would go with them. In terms of defence, he said uh, Australia and the United States are joined at the hip. And we saw that with Iran, you know, we see this kind of performance of debate about whether, you know, should Donald Trump go to war with Iran if Australia would join them, you know, the, the Australian government is considering this very seriously. We will consider any requests that come from the Americans on their merit. And we have this whole kind of dance. But, you know, we know that it's inevitable that Australia will follow the United States into these wars. And, and you know, the reasoning, I suppose, is this assumption that we need to support the United States in whatever it does so that they will protect us, so they will provide us with this kind of military guarantee. And I just think that that is such a morally bankrupt way of of seeing the world and and our role in it. And one of the areas that America won't give us cover in necessarily in a political sense is on climate change, which is a new thing. And I mean, that is one point that has been emphasised by the media is, well, surely America is going to drag Australia into climate action. We haven't really seen a huge amount of shifting, definitely not in action, a little bit in rhetoric. And obviously things have been coming to more and more of a climactic point, Mm. given that we've seen the latest IPCC report being delivered, which is really dire, to say the least. Mm. And then, of course, moving forward to Glasgow and the next UN Climate Summit, which is coming up as well. We've talked about the negatives and the difficulties and the problems that are inherent in this tied-at-the-hip relationship. Are there any positives on that climate front? Is there any reason to believe that that tension in that regard might actually produce results or outcomes for people who are concerned about climate change? You know, I think certainly there is hope. And and as you said, Amy, you saw we saw an immediate shift in in rhetoric, if not actual policy, when the Biden administration was elected. You know, I, it was really striking to me that when the Prime Minister Scott Morrison gave a press conference congratulating Biden on being elected, the very first question he got after that statement was about climate change and whether Biden's radical climate policies would mean a shift in Australian climate policies. So I think that perceived pressure is important and you can see a shift in the way the Australian government is talking about climate change generally, you know, albeit with a focus on technology and technological solutions. What I argue in the book is that we really can't hope for the United States to fix 
Australian climate policy. And, and that's really for a number of reasons. You know, Joe Biden has kind of declared that the United States will return to global leadership on climate change. And I think that, you know, the Australian government is aware in some ways of the, the lessons of history in that sense, because they know that US administrations have done that before. The Clinton administration declared that it was going to be a global leader on climate change. It went to the Kyoto Protocol negotiations and negotiated the first real global ag agreement that would mandate cuts to greenhouse gas emissions and then, you know, failed to get it through Congress in the United States. The United States never ratified Kyoto. So we see this kind of cycle, I suppose, of, of global climate leadership from the United States where this, there's this declaration of return and then a retreat. And I think the Australian government is banking on something similar happening again. You know, there, we know that there are uh, at least elements in the Morrison government that are hopeful and confident of a Trump or a Trump-like return. And so there's this kind of feeling, I suppose, that the Australian government can really just wait out any kind of diplomatic pressure from the United States when it comes to climate. What I would say, you know, in order to not just be completely negative about it, because I'm, I'm not, but what I would say is that we shouldn't necessarily look to the United States for this kind of global leadership. And what's very different between now and, you know, the 1990s and the Clinton administration in Kyoto is that the rest of the world is also lined up behind some form of climate action, at least. So you see all of Australia's major trading partners, the United States, the European Union, the United Kingdom, South Korea, Japan, Canada, etc committed to some form of climate action. And it's that kind of collective pressure, I think, that may force a change in Australian climate policy. But what I argue in the book is that Australian recalcitrance, recalcitrance on climate is, is deeply tied to our foreign policy more broadly and the way that Australian governments see the possibilities of foreign policy. And that, again, revolves around the United States. So any kind of reform in Australian climate policy, in Australia's moral role in the world, requires really examining what it is the, the alliance with the United States does, not just for, for questions of military security, but for these broader questions about climate change as well. You know, we can't separate these things out. Well, you've brought me perfectly to my last question, Emma, so thank you, which was looking towards the future and also reflecting at that higher level and, and really having a bit of self-awareness, I guess, at a foreign policy level and a domestic policy level, but particularly foreign policy, if we're thinking about what could be a way forward, uh, if we accept that there are some really problematic aspects of this situation that we have been in for, you know, a number of decades now. And if we want to start to imagine a different way of doing things, what is that potential way? Because you do examine that in the last chapter is to look at those proposals that have been put forward. And there'd be a number of people who've, you know, made various comments, including Malcolm Fraser, the former prime minister who even wrote a book on it before he died. Yep. There is this kind of idea that we could have a foreign policy independence and you talk about the fact that you wouldn't necessarily say we should just trash the ANZUS Treaty. So I wonder what would your reflections be? What would some of your conclusions be? Obviously, you don't have to give the whole game away. We can <laughs> let people read the book, but just to kind of close out this chat. Sure. It is, it's, it's a really difficult question, of course, Amy, you know, and I don't know that I have a satisfactory answer, but I would say, you know, I don't think trashing ANZUS is, is the answer because, you know, ANZUS could be gone tomorrow, but the structures that allowed ANZUS to exist, the structures that allow one man in the White House to decide the fate of the world still exist. And so even, you know, within those structures, Australia exercising a bit of independence while potentially it could be a really good thing you know for me I think is not enough I think we're entitled to ask for more you know we're entitled to imagine a better world and a better future for Australia in it and and what I argue is that you know we can look to the history of Australia in the world we can look to various points in time where you know various Australian governments for example have opposed things like apartheid in South Africa and have stood up to the Reagan administration and the Thatcher government in the UK and said, no, we take a moral position on apartheid in South Africa, which had really significant global consequences for, for the longevity of that regime. So independence certainly is possible. 
But I argue that we we can and we should be asking for more from Australia in the world. And doing that, again, is going to require going back to the history and the origins of not just ANZUS, but Australia's role in the world generally, and really honestly examining the deeply racist origins of the way Australia and Australian governments in particular have seen the world and confronting that before we can begin this kind of process of radically reimagining the world that we live in. I think how we actually do that is a really difficult question that I don't have the answer to, but I think it has to be, it would have to absolutely be a collective project. You know, it's not leaving foreign policy up to those six white blokes in a room in 1951. It's about democratic accountability and this radical reimagining of what Australia's role in the world can and should be. Well, you've helped open up the space for us to have that discussion publicly and hopefully I cross my fingers at higher levels in a political sense through this book that you've just written called Our Exceptional Friend, Australia's Fatal Alliance with the United States, which is officially released through Hardy Grant Books. Emma, as always, it's a pleasure, but this book really is, I truly believe, a really brilliant contribution, a meaningful contribution, and I do hope that people can read it if they find themselves interested by what we've just been talking about and want to learn more because there's a great deal of detail we haven't yet got to naturally because this is such a, a nuanced book. So thank you so much for everything you've done. Oh, Thank you, Amy. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. I've just been speaking with Dr Emma Shortis, who, as you can tell, is a historian. She has the long view of things, which is exactly what is needed. Um, we want to make sure that everything we think about is informed by history so we're not making mistakes. The book is called Our Exceptional Friend, and it is really a wonderful contribution and so brilliantly written as well. Very, very well written and easy to read. So I do hope that you can pick it up if that's something of interest to you. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.